Welcome to episode 300 of Cinematary. Woo. I'm your host, Zach Dennis. I'm here with Jessica Carr, Ash Baker, Andrew Swafford, Nathan Smith, Michael O'Malley. <laughs> and in today's episode, we will be celebrating 300 episodes of the Cinematary podcast by doing our movie swap. And Woo. unless I'm wrong, everybody is relatively sober in this iteration, so that's good. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> always, always questionable when Nathan's on a pod. Yeah, for well, sure. If you can't smell it. <laughs> we haven't got to that technology yet with the podcasting where you can smell. You want to add in one of our uh, film theory and chill uh, sound effects? Yeah, I can, I can do that if that would make you feel better. <laughs> yeah, because I broke my second one. You broke the second one too? Oh. Rest we'll have to peace. save that for an episode. Yeah, now I've ordered I ordered a silicone trailer park boy. Ah, so. Canada. <laughs> Breaking days no more. I've got a Bruce Willis bong now. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> wow. Cinematary After Cinematary Dark. Cinematary After Dark, baby. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and jump into the, uh, the movie selections that we have. The first one is the movie that Jessica watched, but Ash, I'm going to let you uh, introduce it since you picked it for him. Yeah, so uh, I assigned Jessica to watch Twister. Um, <laughs> <laughs> classic 1996 um who, who cares who directed it it's awesome oh, no 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 reed ramsey is sitting at home getting very yeah. mad right now it's no. it's yeah it jan yeah. jan who made jan debon jan debon a tourism represent <laughs> fucking respect the speed king sorry uh, uh apologies to everyone everywhere um i just hadn't looked it up <laughs> um it stars Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, whatever, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the man himself, who we love, who we miss, R.I.P., our king. R.I.P. Bill Paxton, too. Don't disrespect Bill Paxton. Oh, I didn't Rest know he was I also. didn't know he was dead. Yeah. That's so sad. You just said whatever Hope after his R.I.P. Helen Hunt. <laughs> 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 All right, well, take it, uh, take it away, Jessica. Just, there is Jessica, a, how about, there is a time limit, by the way. We're doing a 10-minute time limit for each of these. All right, and it's starting now. Oh. What a whirlwind of an intro. <laughs> 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 wow. So I want, to, I want to preface my monologue of Twister with the fact that I have only seen this movie by, like, being in a room with my dad <laughs> while he's watching it on TNT or something. And I've seen, like, bits and pieces of it because of that. But one day I went to Universal Studios, like, in college, and there was a ride, and it was called Twister. And I was like, hell yeah, like, this is going to be an amazing ride. Can you picture, like, a tornado ride? It's going to be awesome. And the line, it was the summertime, so the line was super long. It was winding around the building, and the building had, like, a giant tornado on it. And I was like, this ride is going to be awesome. So I stand in line, and as you go through this building, there are screens everywhere. It's like tube TVs, and it looks like 
pieces of building have like come through and like cows are suspended and it looks like the building has gone through a tornado and then there's a tube tv and it turns on like every t every room that you go in while you're standing in line has tube tvs and the tube tv turns on and it says hey everybody my name's bill paxton and i'm from 1996 <laughs> twister let me tell you about how we made this film and so i got to see behind the scenes of this movie that i don't remember I don't remember and they were like talking about getting rain just like blown on them with these giant like turbine fans and just getting blasted with water and how much of a feat it was making this movie and I'm like (laughs) this ride is gonna be the best ride ever it's gonna be awesome and every room that I walked in there was a tube there's a tube tv and he goes hey guys it's me Bill Paxton again and it's me it's me from 1996's Twister from 1996 Twister and I I went through five rooms waiting in line, and every single time, Bill Paxton was like, we've never met before, it's me, Bill Paxton, right here, we've never met each other before, this is 1996 Twister. And I, I by the like, way, I just googled this ride, because I was curious, like, what year must they have built this for them to be calling attention to it being 1996's Twister? And it was 1998 <laughs> that they built this ride. Uh, the ride is, by the way, is called Twister Dot, dot, dot. Oh, hell yeah. Ride it out. (laughs) So I get to the end of this ride, and and I'm like, okay, I'm about to get on this ride. It's going to blow my mind. I know who Bill Paxton is now. We've met each other like five times. I was like, I'm going to get on this ride. And it ends up like I get on this like stage platform thing and in front of me which at the time I didn't know because I hadn't seen the movie before was the drive-in like a replication of the drive-in that is in the film and the wind just starts so all these people are standing in rows and then there's a stage and there's a replication of the drive-in and it's verbatim exactly like a like a shot from the movie and there's like a lightning bolt hits the gas station, stuff starts sparking, a fire breaks out, and then a a just wind, just wind starts blowing in your face and they spray water in your face and then a tornado just swirls around and they were like, thanks for coming, that was Twister, everybody, <laughs> good job. And it's, it was just them blowing wind in our faces and I was like, I cannot believe I just stood in line this well, it's long. primarily, I've also been on this ride, it's primarily like a effects demonstration on how they made Twister. They did not advertise it like that. And also, I think that I did this in like 2015. So for an audience member in 2015, I was like, big whoop. I was like, okay. I was like, I was just... I was just on a Transformers ride where I wore 3D glasses and I got to like shoot at things. I was like, this was not exciting. I cannot believe this happened. But I finally watched the movie and I was sort of also like big woof. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's great. I will say, so let me get the positives out of the way. I do appreciate what it was doing for the time that it was doing it, like I understand, for 1996. it was a big <laughs> yes. For 1996, <laughs> it was a great feat, 
And I appreciate them showing a female scientist who's very passionate about meteorology and she wants to, you know, her dad got blown away. So she's like, I got to figure out, I got to defeat this tornado. I got to figure out what makes it and I got to defeat it. And that was like her whole purpose. But the, like the love triangle that they were trying to do. Is the premise that they have to defeat the tornado? They want to learn. They want. They have. They have sensors that go up, and they want to learn. They want to collect data so that they can learn the makeup of a tornado, okay. so that they can warn people. So, like the warning system uh, only gives people five minutes before the tornado hits. So they want to make up a warning system that gives people at least fifteen to twenty minutes, so that they can get to shelter without dying. They're not trying to punch the and tornado so, or anything. No, but her, honestly, like her plot line in the film is pretty much like she wants to defeat the tornado. <laughs> like everyone, everyone is rooting for her. Like you got to do this for your father. You got to, you got to defeat this tornado. It's pretty much what it's like. But her romance with Bill Paxton just, just overshadows what I think the film is trying to do, which is, you know, when you love something, when you're passionate about it, it overtakes your entire world. And these two people are trying to be in a relationship when all they really care about are tornadoes. <laughs> so, like, they they can't make their relationship work, but for some reason, whoever wrote this decided to write in a love triangle where Bill Paxton is getting, he wants to divorce Helen Hunt's character but he brings in his new girlfriend to like hunt tornadoes with them because he's trying to get her to sign the divorce papers but like that lady she is she just almost get she almost gets killed by like three tornadoes in a row because Bill Paxton is dragging her around and he ends up obviously he's still in love with Helen Hunt and he's like holding her during the tornadoes and this other lady is just in the car with Philip Seymour Hoffman like uh I don't know what I'm doing here but I guess I'm gonna see some tornadoes and they try to do a love triangle thing but it's like a love triangle where the other person has zero chance is is it trying to ape Jurassic Park a little bit. You don't, also in Jurassic Park you have like scientific professionals who are in a relationship but they have like commitment issues and well, it's funny you yeah. say that Andrew because the writer of Jurassic Park wrote Twister. Oh, okay. Oh, there my it is. God. <laughs> yeah, it felt it felt a lot like Jurassic Park because whenever even just the way that it was filmed it felt a lot like Jurassic Park. But some of my, so anyways, the love triangle is meaningless. The the lady, I felt really bad for her because she had no chance. Like Bill Paxton is making sex eyes at Helen Hunt the entire time. So she had zero chance. She got she almost got killed by three tornadoes <laughs> for no reason. Second thing, there okay, so what I didn't like about this movie is that and also they spent they spent all of their money on the Twister effects because the soundtrack is like royalty-free music, <laughs> and it is awful. It is absolutely terrible. There, There is a shot of a satellite in the sky, and it looks like clip art. 
because they couldn't use any money. <laughs> they couldn't use any of their money on that. Wait. <laughs> the person who composed the music for this movie also composed the music for Moana and Tarzan. It's bad. It's not good. <laughs> There's a part where they're going, they're trying to show... Wait, Phil Collins? No, 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 no. So the, the, that's like the songs in oh, Tarzan. But this is the composer, yeah. So they're, they're trying to show the demolition and like all of the all of the houses that are torn up and families gathering together and how sad that is but they they try to like meld baby cries in with the score and it sounded it sounded very cheesy and very bad i did not like it but ending on a positive note like twister there are two dogs in twister and they save them they save both of these sweet precious dogs and that is good it is the cows, on the other hand, they do not get saved, but the dogs survive. And also, rest in peace, rest in power, Bill Paxton and Philip Seymour Hoffman. They did a really good job in this movie, and that's that's all I've got to say. Sounds like the uh, real tornado was Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt's relationship. You know, yeah. that was the real twister. Nineteen, it's 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 Bill Paxton. From 1996's Twister. Uh, it's him. Ash, tell it's us why you star picked of, uh, Big Love. Tell us Great why you show. picked Twister for Jessica Ash. Um, Twister was always on the cable television when I was growing up, and I I loved it. I was simultaneously terrified of tornadoes, and I was obsessed with them. And I loved Twister. It scared me, but I loved to watch it. And I, I've always loved it. It's just a beloved movie, you know. I think it's great. It is one of those like quintessential like cable Sunday afternoon movies. Yeah. Like it's like yeah. that canon of TNT film. canon. Yeah, it's a must see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the TNT. We got, we got a we got a couple TNT classics on this uh, on this yeah, list. Then we've done. Uh, oh, also like we have TNT classics in our backlog too. We did Air Force One. Yeah. Air Force One. <laughs> My movie's a big TNT classic. I'm just saying. <laughs> Yours is more of an FX classic, I think. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Or like Spike. We got Spike the movies. TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean that's FX's slogan is we've got the movies just a statement. <laughs> Wait, is that really their slogan? Yeah. They're like the Arby's of movies. <laughs> Cutting edge. <laughs> they don't really have that many. They're the Arby's pivoted. Arby's of channels. <laughs> we've got the meat and we've got the movies. Yeah, I mean that's just what movies are. They're just a slab of meat. We're only 30 minutes into this podcast. Just wait till we get get to Tampopo. Oh my god. I can't get to. (laughs) We're all slabs of meat. I don't have time for that. It's too early. So, uh, when Jessica requested Ash um, give her a movie. Uh, Jessica asked for like, give me an Ash brand movie, and I think what she was expecting was the movie that Zach picked yes. for Ash. <laughs> yeah, so. I thought that I was gonna get something spicy. Nah. So, uh, I'm so sorry to disappoint. You just got something so, really windy. I think that I front as someone like very spicy, but it, actually I'm just like a bland potato. Just a tornado. Just a tornado on the inside. 
No, I was I, I I had Ash, and I was like, what do they want to see? And then I was like, well, let's look at the last probably three months of Cinematary that they've been on, and. Uh, my conclusion was they're going to want something horny. So uh, <laughs> I went with Basic Instinct because I literally went to your letterbox watch list and was like, where's a horny movie that's on here that you haven't seen? Um, and this one was like, yeah, this is right up there. So uh, 1992's Basic Instinct. Ash, I'm going to leave it to you to, to intro that. Yes. So Basic Instinct, um, 1992, Paul Verhoeven. Um it's my letterboxed review says Hitchcock with lesbians, um, which I mean, that's basically, I think, what sums it up. There's like, a, can I interject yeah. really quickly before we get too far away from Paul Verhoeven as a yes. director? I think one of the very first times oh I God. ever hung out with Ash, it was <laughs> me, Nathan, and Ash watching Showgirls by Paul Verhoeven. Um, And uh, Ash gave that movie a half star on Letterboxd. And uh, it was a contentious evening. But Yeah, it was really... That was really (laughs) awkward. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's a weird way to introduce uh, yourself to somebody. Let's watch Showgirls. But I feel like you should uh, revisit that movie. No, I think think if I watched it again, I would definitely like it a lot more. I think at the time... I was both A, in a weird situation, and B, like, kind of in a prudish, uh, like, mindset. And so I was, like... There's a ridiculous amount of nudity in that movie. Yeah. um, I kept thinking after I watched this uh, movie, Basic Instinct, about the the epic um, pool sex scene in Showgirls. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, because because Paul Verhoeven he just has his way with sex scenes. Everyone is so like, um, uh, I I don't know. Everyone's just like really freaked out, kind of. By, with I I paused. I paused the timer because we're not even talking about the movie that we're supposed to at this point. Jessica talked about a theme park ride for like six minutes of it. Hey, <laughs> theme park it was relevant. Sorry, Ash. It was relevant, this is relevant to the movie. Theme park cinema, baby. So, All right, I'm, re- I'm yeah, resuming. So this movie was like, well, first I got to say it's like a, it was like a real trip watching it and there be just being so many like faces that are recognized in it um to like the main stars are michael douglas and sharon stone and um gene triplehorn but you have people like um mitch um Pileggi, who plays uh skinner on the x-files and you have James Rebhorn, who has been in literally everything. He's just the old guy in everything. He's usually a cop. Um, and then you have Stephen um, Tobolowski, who's just an epic nerd. You have Wayne Knight <laughs> Newman. Um, there's just, like, a lot of great people in this movie. Um, but, yeah. Is there a Newman sex scene? No, there's there's no Newman sex scene. Um Damn. But we do we we start and, and basically finish on a on a sex scene, um, you know, just book in that bitch 
Um, <laughs> we have a great. <laughs> we have a great. Um, I want that on a pillow. <laughs> we have we have a great scene in like this this like '90s like gay San Francisco dance club, and it's like neon lights and gays and leather and and uh, fishnet and we're dancing and we're doing coke in the bathroom and we're ah loud music. And there's this great um, moment where Sharon Stone is dancing with her girlfriend because Sharon Stone is gay as hell in this movie. And um, she's dancing with her girlfriend and this gay guy. And then Michael Douglas comes in casual Friday wearing like a V-neck sweater with nothing under it. And he comes in and he's like, you know, walking like seductively up to Sharon Stone, bisexual queen. And Sharon Stone like comes over and starts like, you know, like flirt dancing with Michael Douglas and um, Sharon Stone's girlfriend, Roxy, and this gay guy are doing like this angry dancing while they're like watching Sharon Stone dance with uh, Michael Douglas and it's just such an epic scene like like that would be me like just angry dancing while my hot girlfriend is like kissing a straight guy at the gay bar um but there's like uh it, it is kind of like a Hitchcock movie though there's like a it's in San Francisco it's very vertigo feel um Sharon Stone's character has a couple of very like Hitchcock blonde uh outfits um there's like uh the I guess the famous uh scene or whatever I had actually seen on the internet before like just floating around Twitter one time the scene where like her vulva is like exposed <laughs> um <laughs> I think that's what most people know about this movie yeah. if they have not yeah, seen this movie. So there's, yeah so there's so there's that scene and I was actually also, I watched this movie with my friends who I have been quarantined with, and the way that my one of my friends gasped aloud when when she uncrosses her legs, it was appalling. Um, but uh, so I was reading that she had no idea that. She her vulva would be filmed on uh in the movie, in that Whoa. yeah it's a big, big yeah big so apparently Paul Verhoeven was like your underwear are too shiny please take them off oh, <laughs> and, no. and she was like oh they're too shiny okay and she took them off and and um so five minutes he like filmed <laughs> okay so he like filmed it and she was like. It, and she, like, slapped him in the face when she saw it. But um, Paul Verhoeven's like, nah, she definitely knew. But anyway, um, I really enjoyed this movie. I Apparently there were, like, at the time that it came out, there were, like, a ton of, like, gay and lesbian and women protesters to it saying that it was, like, homophobic and sexist because, like, all the villains are bisexual and women and I would just like to say that is some second wave 
um, fucking <laughs> identity politics bullshit. This movie's great. Oh my god. Um, calm your asses down. I I ride with the uh the bisexual femme fatale gay Hitchcock shit. <laughs> drop <Okay>. drop Mike. <laughs> you uh, don't don't let anybody get in your way. Yeah. <laughs> um. Follow your instincts. Yeah, you know? thank you. Zach, have you your, even seen your this most movie? basic ones? The most basic of them. No, no, oh. I, I solely went off. Oh my god, this, Zach, this seems you horny to, enough. You have to watch it. It's so good. You're not doing your due diligence, Zach. I haven't I seen the movie uh, that I well, picked for Zach, so I, I would not want to hold him to a standard I don't want myself held to. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, sure. No, we should do that, guys. We should do that. Everyone, I think the rule. I think the rule should be it's reciprocal, and you have to go watch. You mean the you, one you you can't just like curse someone with a movie chore <laughs> like I did for Zach? Uh, wait, I guess you didn't watch. You can, the, but then the you've got to you've got to pay the piper. Yeah. yeah. You so you're saying that like. I've seen the Love Guru, you know. I, you know, I, I've, I've experienced that around the same time that I was seeing my movie, mm-hmm. 2006 is 300, yeah. oh because boy. this is the 300th episode, and we're just hilarious. That, that's the only introduction that I was going to give. So, you you take it away. Yeah. Well. All right. Also, start it's the timer. Worth, maybe worth mentioning that today is the day that news broke that the Snyder cut of Justice League <laughs> is is officially being Hell released yeah. next year. <laughs> Four hours, baby, of cl- premium streaming content. Six-part miniseries. Max. You know, that it seems like a perfect format to, you know, something called HBO Max seems like the right place mm-hmm. to be putting Zack Snyder content, quite honestly. All right, I'm going to hit the timer. Because yeah. HBO Max is where 300 will most likely end up. 300 <laughs> um, came out. <laughs> 2006 and it just started a wave of uh of just asshole well not it didn't start a wave of asshole guys but it gave them a new uh a new like you know mantra in life which is to be be like the spartans um but this is based not necessarily i mean it's vaguely based on the historical event from 480 bc where uh or the the 300 Spartans, along with their king, Leonidas, uh, tried to stave off the invading Persians into mainland Greece. And they did that by kind of setting up in this little kind of mountain corridor so that even though there were millions and millions of troops from the Persians, they had to kind of filter them through this uh, this pass. And so um, historically, not really kind of a blip on the entire Pel- uh, like the, the war of that period in time. Um, the Persians kind of rolled through the Spartans and it was kind of a hiccup. And then the Athenians used it as a rallying cry to get the rest of Greece together in order to fight um, the Persian army uh it was it was not like in 300 where it was in you know you had these chiseled men including michael fassbender and gerard butler who are uh you know oiled up and ready to fight but this is yeah michael fassbender is in this and is uh trying a lot of stuff (laughs) um but this is based on the graphic novel by frank miller who people might know from like sin city and uh, Batman uh, the Killing Joke, I think, is him. I don't know. Something Batman related. Batman The Dark Knight Returns. And Batman The Dark Knight Returns. And the Dark Knight Returns is the one that everybody points to to say uh, Batman is fascist, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, so and Batman Year aligned. One is basically like the inspiration for Batman Begins. And yeah. he sort of like, I think, reshaped the whole idea of like what Batman was and is the kind of urtext for Nolan's take on him too. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see just the... This one very much is invoking like a lot of the graphic novel stuff i mean it feels kind of Mm -hmm. it's not nearly as cartoonish as something like speed racer which we talked about a couple weeks ago uh this this one is more like in this kind of gritty dark uh kind of almost comic book panel style to an extent that's that's kind of the visual style that director Zack Snyder takes um but like I said Gerard Butler's in it Lena Headey who I remember her being in this before she was in Game of Thrones where she's probably more well known uh you got McNulty from The Wire Dominic West is in this he's a he's a nasty little traitor uh, and he and he gets stabbed, and then he spills over his money, and his money has the face of Xerxes, and then all the Spartans are like traitor because he has the you know the money with the other guy's face on it, uh, which I found very entertaining. Um, you also have, like I said, Michael Fassbender, and then just a a bunch of just shirtless white dudes from the UK <laughs> who are just uh, here to here to be beef. Um, kind of, you know, I don't know. It, it, this almost is a hornier movie than Basic Instinct, quite honestly. This is, <laughs> this is a homoerotic well, epic. Know. Already on the watch list. So, um, yeah. So, <laughs> pretty much, this is the all it is is the, is this battle. Um, you kind of open it up with Leonidas, who's played by Gerard Butler. Uh, they go through his his history of how he became a tough man. Uh, he killed a wolf. <laughs> And uh, you know when you be, when you kill a wolf, sad. I guess in Spart in 480 in BC Spartan times, that makes you a king. So he becomes the king of Sparta. Uh, he has his his you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna describe this as a as a bro would in 2006. So he's got you got Leonidas, just like cool ass, hell yeah, kick ass, epic dude. Then you have his kick ass hot wife. You know who is also kind of feeding him. Uh, you know how to actually, you know how to help him run this 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 country, which is not a country. Sparta is just a city uh, in the region of Laconia, but you know whatever. And then these Persian messengers come by, and the Persian messengers are like, "Hey, Xerxes is coming. He's about to like really have a really terrible time here in Sparta. So you might want to do something." And Leonidas is like, "Hell no, nah, I'm not doing that." And then you get the iconic, "This is Sparta," and kicks the guy into the uh, into the pit. Then you uh, go up, and you have this half naked oracle woman who, uh, in these ugly goblin things from the lord of the rings who tell him no you're not allowed to go to war but they're also getting you know a little money on the side because capitalism am i right uh and so um he ignores that he goes to war and then you get about an hour and a half of some deeply xenophobic warfare between a glisteningly white arrow uh (laughs) um just aryan brotherhood of of spartans facing a rather brown (laughs) microcosm of racism just all 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 different microcosms of racism so yeah aren't there also some real questionable sexual politics this movie too i've heard about a rape scene that is very poorly handled (laughs) there's a (laughs) There's a lot of question. There's a lot of questionable politics about this movie. Um, I'm trying to think <laughs> about the rape scene. Um, 
Yeah, you have this orgy scene as well. You have this like sex scene between Leonidas and his wife. Um, but you have this rape where Dominic West's character is like trying to portray his political dominance over Leonidas's wife. Um, and then that leads to the whole, the money comes out and she's, um, you know, he's exposed as a, as a traitor. And so and that's after she stabs him. But yeah, there's this kind of quick scene where it kind of seems like a prototype for her role in game of Thrones, where she's, you know, taking part in a very questionable sexual scene. So there is that. Um, there's a lot of just kind of, inklings of fascism in this um it's it's kind of interesting because this comes out in 2006 and it does lead to it kind of has this pop culture moment to an extent because while you know Zack snyder goes on to direct like the batman versus superman justice league as well as like uh watchmen and sucker punch and all this stuff um Watch but there's them. also like clash of the titans Immortals. and um troy Immortals. You just kind of have like this revisionist. Yeah, I don't know that one. yeah this kind. Well, this the swords this kind and of sandals like, revival. Yeah, this. Well, the swords yeah. and sandals kind of like fantasy history revival, where it's just it's kind of using like yeah. the. And that's what. And that's I read this interesting piece mm-hmm. about kind of all of the different connections to fascism that you can that are found through how people interpret this battle that happened. You know thousands and thousands of years ago um it's kind of interesting because despite like what frank miller's graphic novel or just kind of the myth of this battle was um the spartans i mean they were they were well renowned in the greek world for like their warfare and and such but they also were losing a bunch you know they weren't they weren't as tactical as you would like to believe um and so like (laughs) this happens and like i said they it happens and then it what they think is more the Athenians took the story of this and again, like used it as propaganda in order to rally up the rest of Greece against the Persians, which already kind of has like this kind of questionable, um, you know, connotation to it because you have again, like this Mm -hmm. very Aryan group of men, even though it's they're Greek for whatever reason, um, this very Aryan group of men against these foreign invaders. And it really like you have just these brawny, uh, I mean, they're hardly wearing any clothes. They have like a cape and like these booty shorts on, and then they got their sword and their shield and their ma- and their helmet. Um, and then you have the the Persians, and it's 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 Persia as well as like all of these various armies from Asia at this period of time. And um, and and you have like Xerxes who is very kind of androgynous and has like uh these earrings and these tattoos and uh these like rings all over his finger and like i said you they go through this orgy sequence and you have all of these like various uh like you have a guy with like a goat head and it's all of these it's like they threw all of these taboos all into this like one <laughs> location and so you're kind of it, there is just kind of this base level myth making um gear that it's working at where you know you have uh it's it's very clear like this the the them versus us mentality that it's kind of establishing through this thing and it is kind of i mean it's it's difficult to not be wrapped up into it because i'm not a giant Zack snyder fan by any stretch um i mean i'm I'm trying to think. There's not really one that I kind of. I think. I mean, I, I Watchmen's another one where I saw it at the time, and I probably should watch it again. You know, in you know, after in 2020. But this one for sure, like 
there is something interesting just about the visual style because it does work on this um yeah i know it does work on first person to break his timeline i know it's, it's this is what 300 does to you um it does kind of utilize this kind of comic book aesthetic in a way that is pretty interesting. I mean, it, I, don't, I didn't find it as interesting as like Speed Racer and how it kind of uses the cartoon comic effect to it. But, I mean, you think of like you have this and you have things like, I mean, another Frank Miller, Sin City, in the way that Robert Rodriguez directs that. Have you seen, um, um, have you seen The Warriors? Yeah. His movie, The Spirit. Yeah, The Spirit. You just kind of have like these... It's it's like merging that kind of comic tile, comic book tile aesthetic into like a moving image. Um, that is that is pretty interesting. I mean, you like there's the the way that Snyder like utilizes like this kind of slow mo effect and the silhouetting of of things. I mean, it it. It, it, it like the just the the visuals of it are are very interesting um but i also find him to be a director that is constantly flirting with fascist ideologies and is never somebody to i mean like i was telling michael before frank miller was like yeah i i i'm pretty aware of like the fascist connections to the spartan leonidas myth i mean you have all of these alt right um, right-wing groups that, I mean, as far back as, like, I mean, even before, you know, the the obvious, like, historic example of, like, the Nazis who use this Latin term, Molen Labe, uh, which means come and take it as, like, a, a, like a moniker, a cry. I mean, you have, like, a American colonel during the American Revolution who yells it at, at the British who are trying to, you know, who are trying to take over Fort Morris, you have the, you know Texan settlers who are yelling it at, um, you know the Mexican army as it comes over. I mean, it, it, it is this kind of battle cry for the alt right. I usually see it on yeah. bumper stickers. I see it on bumper stickers with like a semi-automatic uh, like gun silhouettes. Exactly, and so and Frank Miller is like, yeah, like I'm aware of that, but pretty much his his assessment was, you know, if you look through history, there there's there are these kind of like admirable democratic leaders, but it seems like you need a little fascism, you know, just a little sprinkle and just a little little sprinkle of it to get things done, and so so Zach's not. Yeah, yeah, because they lose, you know. <laughs> they lose, and so I, I just don't feel like Zach. The, well, the last thing is I don't. I just don't feel like Zack Snyder's like. I, I'm sure he is aware of it, but he's not somebody who like he just kind of wants to leave it there. Mm. And I don't think you can do that, at least in my opinion. Well, worth mentioning that um, before the Snyder cut became a thing and before the announcement of his uh, Netflix movie Army of the Dead he was attached to direct an adaptation of The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand Um, and also worth mentioning that one of Frank Miller's most recent books um, is this comic called Holy Terror which he originally wanted to write as a Batman comic called Holy Terror Batman where Batman was going to fight Al-Qaeda and because he couldn't get DC's permission to print that title, um, it's, you know, a sort of Batman-ish mercenary vigilante superhero taking on an Al-Qaeda-ish terrorist group. Um, so, you know, that makes it kind of 
pretty makes it pretty plain what's going on in that dude's head. I think. It's, <laughs> and that's and that's and that's what I think. Like at the at this again, I'll I'll commend him visually. It at least is something. I think it's it it's become kind of a boring aesthetic because of the popularity of something like this. That it like people kind of mimicked it and kind of lost its mystique a little bit. But as like the the first instance of this kind of comic book uh tile thread aesthetic um it is like that is a visually interesting touchstone but other than that it's just kind of it's it's just fodder for the people who are clamoring for a goddamn snyder cut anyway so um i don't know i I, just leave it for fx quite honestly just leave it for fx um (laughs) so all right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we got our next three movies after this, so stick with us. Hey, Cemetery listeners, Andrew here. At the midpoint of this week's episode, I want to direct you to some of the non-podcasty things we have to offer. First, if you're a fan of what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get three things. A shout-out at the end of every episode, the opportunity to choose a movie we cover on the show, and our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Film Theory and Chill, in which we look at a piece of theory once a month, deconstruct it, and then just chill out, talking about whatever else we have going on. All Patreon support goes solely to paying our writers for their reviews that go up on our website every Monday. Also, at the bottom of Cinematary.com, you can sign up for our free newsletter. Every Sunday, we send out an email with the latest podcast episode, Patreon content, and written reviews. This is perfect for those who want to keep tabs on what's happening, but might be too busy to see the posts when they go up. Before I go, one more quick thing. The easiest thing you can do to support us is to give Cinematary a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. This is quick, free, easy, and we will read your review out on the show once we get it. To recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and please give us a rating and review. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. back with part two of episode 300 let's uh let's move it along with our next pick we have so much crap in our chat (laughs) (laughs) i have to scroll up um i'm gonna toss it over to uh, nathan and andrew you can introduce it yeah this is a movie that blew my little old mind when i saw it last year (laughs) a film uh a, a forgotten film but once you see it it's unforgettable I think. Oh, yeah. Um, it is Warren Beatty's Bullworth, um, one of the wildest political satires I, I believe I've ever seen. Maybe one of the best, honestly, kind of, you know, American presidential, you know, electoral sort of satires. You know, that's a genre mm-hmm. that I feel like had a big moment in the 90s. Um, and this is one of the, for sure, the strangest, most unhinged. And most radical, I think, uh, of those movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
our third 90s movie of episode <laughs> yeah. 300. I don't know. I don't know what, Very we 90s all, cable. what vibe we were all on, but yeah. So uh, as Nathan alluded to, this is a um, presidential campaign political not a presidential campaign he's actually a, a running for senate right right yeah, um, yeah, yeah Bullworth yeah. is running for senate but it's a political satire um, about a democratic politician uh named uh jay billington Bullworth, <laughs> uh, who is running for re-election in the senate uh, this is as bill clinton is also running for um the presidency uh, and it's kind of a foregone conclusion that he's going to win it uh, there's not a lot of political um uh, expediency or urgency among the electorate and he's just kind of phoning in uh his senate campaign mm-hmm. uh the first scene is really great um you see him in his office after dark watching all of these different takes of of campaign ads that he's done it's just him saying slight variations on the same thing over and over and over uh, and they're all mostly kind of empty sentiment like not really meaning much of anything like we're we're standing on the precipice of a new millennium but he also is throwing in some coded reactionary racist stuff about needing to oppose affirmative action programs and and things like that um and also the the camera is kind of scanning around his office and you're seeing all these photographs that he's hung up of people mm-hmm. like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks and you get the idea that this is someone who maybe at one point had sincere uh, political and anti-racist convictions, but has just kind of been subsumed in the political machine um, and has played the game so long that he's lost any sense of, of uh, uh, genuine um, mm-hmm. care or concern for, for why he's doing what he's doing. Um, and and all of these these little audio snippets of him talking on the, these commercials, all these different takes of the commercial or start to blur and into one another and stack on top of each other. And there's becomes this big cloud of of uh, uh, of dialogue um, and we later find out that he hasn't slept in like five days uh, and the next day uh, the, the movie takes place uh, in a very short amount of time maybe somewhere between 24 and 48 hours um, and we see him basically crack um uh, at a couple of in-person fundraisers and speaking engagements, things like that. Um, but we also learn before he goes to some of these speaking engagements that he's suicidal uh, and he has hired a hitman to assassinate himself um, because he wants it to look like murder. He's taken out this big life insurance policy and he wants to uh, make sure his his wife, who he's estranged from, and his daughter, who we never see, get, uh, uh, is it $10 million uh, at the yeah, event of his death? Yeah, some absurd amount of, um, of money like and, that. Yeah, we, we see him haggle with the life insurance guy to make sure he gets the full $10 million. We also see him... Uh, in a back room, uh, like dark money deal with a health insurance provider, um, or a CEO of a health insurance company who's paying, essentially paying him in a health insurance policy to not 
to vote against a bill that would lead to health insurance companies having to give more policies to poor people and predominantly African-American people. Um, and we see we see that guy go on a, a long rant of like, I'm not racist, but and then proceed to, you know, li- list off this laundry list of like coded racist um, ideas and stereotypes of people he does not want to be selling uh, health insurance to. Um, so we see Bullworth start to crack. Uh, we see him as like uh, revealed as this very corrupt politician and as a guy who thinks he doesn't have a whole lot of time uh, uh, left on this earth. He just kind of stops caring um, about the optics of the things that he says. Um, and, and the most um, memorable scene uh, here is him speaking to like historic African-American church. And he basically tells them that he doesn't care about them and he isn't going to vote on any policy that's going to help them because he's in the pocket of big business. And, you know, if if the, the black church had millions of dollars to hand his way under the table, he would help them out. But, you know, that's just not how the game is played. <laughs> um, and then at, w- at one point, uh, somebody in the audience stands up and says, so you mean the Democrats don't really care about the African-American community? And he says, isn't it obvious? <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, this is a very... Um, and, and like, I guess the, the big high concept before I start to get into parallels to, yeah, to yeah. where we're at right now, the big concept is that um, as he starts to crack, um, he is he is pursued by a character played by Halle Five Berry minutes. and a couple of um, friends or, or co-workers of hers um, who and we, we later find out that. Halle Berry has some nefarious purposes for following Bullworth, but he kind of gets taken with their black slang and and the uh, the the rap music that gets played at a club that they take him to. He smokes and weed it, too. He he smokes weed. Uh, he starts like playing with a, a turntable. Oh my uh, god! Doing some <laughs> some amateur DJing, um, but he he starts to like just out of pure like naive curiosity like starts to speak in rhyme trying to mimic the rap music that he's heard at this club and trying to appropriate some of this this language that he's starting to pick up on um and most of the movie is just like Bullworth doing various speaking engagements and doing different interviews and and live tv appearances and things like that and <laughs> he just the the rap persona he takes on this rap persona that becomes more and more um outsized as the as the film goes on i mean it's always very embarrassing like warren Beatty <laughs> is is a very bad rapper and he i think he knows he is a bad rapper he becomes slightly better over the course of the film um as he kind of falls deeper and deeper into the persona but um, it's it's a really embarrassing um, per- performance that Warren Beatty wrote and directed <laughs> for himself. Um, I saw a, a review from Mike D'Angelo criticizing the movie for being like an ego trip on Bullworth's on uh, on Warren Beatty's part of like positioning mm-hmm. him as this hyper woke politician who just tells it like it is. <laughs> um, but it 
It's also like he does not come across looking cool no. as he is delivering I mean, these messages. It's the in most any way. like how do you do fellow kids performance of yeah. all time, and like he absolutely and he totally knows that too. Like you know, I think I don't know. That's the like annoying thing about um, that kind of Mike D'Angelo criticism because I feel like there's a very negative way that you could read this movie where you're saying like, oh, you know, this guy's like. Bullworth is doing all this cultural appropriation and like, you know, spoiler alert of like inevitably he gets assassinated in the end. And so you could say like, oh, you know, it's Warren Beatty trying to like put himself on the level of MLK and Malcolm X. But really, I think what the movie's doing is like, you know, he finally realizes, you know, he is a vessel for like whatever ideas, you know, there are in the world. And so far, he's just been a vessel for big business and insurance and these private interests. And so then he, you know, totally flips the script and goes in the other direction and becomes a literal vessel um, for all of these just like various black people that he meets throughout the movie. You know, he kind of... We we see him parroting, parroting the exact words that Halle Berry's character says to him at yeah. one point. Um, we also see uh, Don Cheadle, uh, who plays like this drug kingpin, uh, go on this long rant about how the, the political establishment isn't working for him and the education system is just like setting people up to fail. And we see him say those exact words yeah. on live television. So like the things that he ends up saying are actually really smart for the most part. This is a, uh, I think fair to say an explicitly leftist movie. Um, yeah. I mean, he literally says socialism, yeah. you know, at that one great moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the, one of the best scenes is like a, his first long rap where he raps about all of the, the donors that are in the room that he's, he's giving a speech in and he talks about the health insurance companies and he talks about the oil companies. Um, and, and, uh, at, that kind of culminates in in him saying like, well, we we have to like keep uh, we we have to keep offering people these like this false hope and these these like uh, self defeating half measures because we wouldn't want to give them the actual solution, which is the you know say it with me the bad word socialism, uh, <laughs> which I don't know it's a, it's a really uh, interesting political text mm-hmm. and there's there's some serious oh, yeah. uh, serious parallels to the uh, twenty. 20 presidential uh, race between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, um, especially as, as like, um, as concerns the like African-American voting demographic, which voted uh, predominantly for Joe Biden. And there's been a lot of discourse about like um, whether or not people who support Bernie are like discounting the voices of the African-American community and things like that. Uh, but that, I mean, to, to go back to that scene where he's talking to the historically black church after, after he says like, isn't it obvious the African-American or democratic party doesn't care about African-American community. He says, well, what are you going to do vote Republican, <laughs> uh, you know, vote for the party who's like outwardly hostile, outwardly like out to get you. Um, so I think there's there's definitely a lot to elucidate on here that I am now out of time to talk about regarding like um, how like the relationship between the Democratic Party and the African American community oh, yeah. and how how much of it is is just kind of like. We settling into the what is perceived to be the only safe option, uh, but is actually not offering that much uh, in terms of like substantial aid. <laughs> uh, 
compared to compared to the alternative, which is, you know, definitely objectively yeah. worse, oh, yeah. but, you know, not also not uh, not helpful. Um, anything else I have not talked about, Nathan, that, that we should touch um, on before we move on? Yeah, just a couple of things. I mean, to your point about its sort of resonance with the 2020 election, I also feel like this movie hit a lot harder for me rewatching it pretty recently. Um as opposed to seeing it last year, just with kind of everything that happened with Bernie Sanders and his um, complete shutout by the corporate media. Um, because there's just like this scene towards the end of Bullworth where he goes on television for this like election night panel and um, he starts talking about how, you know, the news companies are in the same or in the same pocket, you know, of all of these companies that he's also in the pocket of. And they shut down the broadcast, you know, they turn off the lights, you know, uh, stop and they stop filming. And it just felt like it felt like the like a literal sort of extreme version of what happened with Bernie, where like this guy is speaking the truth and, you know, putting the fire to. Uh, the interest of, of corporate media and then they just totally shut him out and um... and of course Bernie um, always positioned himself as much softer and more polite than we see uh, Bullworth uh, as here even though he was kind of framed as like the shouty grouchy old man um, you know his his rhetoric around like revolution was always like not not true like revolutionary rhetoric it was just it was just kind of like to sell an idea um, but if if he was to actually be as you know coarse and as like um, truly confrontational as Bullworth is here you know I have no doubt that the lights would maybe get shut shut off in, in the middle of one of those debates <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah for sure I, I mean, I also think it's a movie with kind of just like an interesting political afterlife um, because towards the end of his second term, it was reported that Obama wistfully talked about his desire to go go Bullworth and just like totally break face and say whatever he wanted to, which uh, did not ever really happen. Uh, doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. <laughs> um, and also, you know, I, like not too long after this movie came out um, and sort of actually even while it came out and before that um, Warren Beatty it was, had been sort of floated as a perennial potential Democratic Party uh, presidential candidate. There's actually a Newsweek cover from 2000 that has like the outsiders and it's pictures of Donald Trump, Jesse Ventura and Warren Beatty, who were all floated as potential presidential candidates in that election. And, you know, of course, we all know how Trump turned out and Jesse Ventura is eyeing a presidential run in 2020. Um, and, uh, Warren Beatty, who knows? I mean, you know, he's, he was, he did two movies this century after Bullworth. Also, one, love um, the Oscar. <laughs> true. One yeah, more that. thing about Bullworth before we move on. Um, I think it's worth, um, dwelling on the plot point where, um, Bullworth's uh, campaign manager is trying to set out set uh, ter- what what is the way to phrase this put out all these fires that he's kind of uh, setting for himself in the press um, but then mm-hmm. doesn't about face when it, he realizes that the electorate is actually responding positively to him that they they 
are they're fine they're finally um, relieved to see a politician talking like a normal person quote unquote telling it like it is which I think is one of the really dangerous or, or like upsetting things about the Trump mm-hmm. uh, presidency right because uh, Trump was able to tap into this populist sentiment everybody could say oh well he talks just like us he tells it like it is because of his his just his speech his language his mannerisms when the the substance of what he's saying doesn't yeah, really yeah. like have a connection with that, um, which um, you know. But you could make uh, a contrast with what Bullworth is doing here, or what Bernie Sanders did in 2020, uh, and and did not was not able to to bring it all the way. But anyways, depressing but <laughs> wild, wild movie. Um, everyone should watch it. Um, I, I think yeah, everyone oh, on this yeah. podcast would very much enjoy it, but. That's Bullworth. Yeah. Um, Michael, uh, you you finally got Nathan to watch an animated movie, so good for you. <laughs> so, yeah, in our chat where we suggested movies, um, Andrew shared, I guess, like a like a tweet. It was a TikTok. Nathan had, or it was a TikTok. Yeah, you're right. Um, that was, uh, you know, where he indicated every time... Uh, Someone made a bunch of animated movie. It felt like infantile. Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Like, like milk, Mickey let's Mouse Clubhouse. let's please insert um, that TikTok and, audio. In yeah. This oh my God! It's this kid, <laughs> this this like middle schooler, who seems to have some kind of TikTok. like speech impediment, but also has a like New Jersey accent, and he's going off about how his teacher makes them watch the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, <laughs> and he's like, "It's for babies." Like. <laughs> And I was like, this is how it feels every time I've been, like, told to watch something like Ernest and Celestine, sorry, and then just, like, fucking hated, honestly, the experience of watching it. Um, So anyway, I thought, you know who else hated Mickey Mouse? Ralph Bakshi. You won't believe what's so stupid, right? Literally, my teacher makes us watch a video of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Are you kidding me? That is the most weirdest shit to ever watch. What am I, a two-year-old? No, I'm a freaking teenager. Like, only babies watch that shit because it's for younger kids. <laughs> so there you go. That's, that's my feeling. Yeah, so anyway, I was like, Ralph Bakshi really hated infantile Disney shit too. So uh, I'm going to recommend Heavy Traffic, which is Ralph Bakshi's like mm-hmm. second or third feature film. Um, after his success with Fritz the Cat, which is about um, like animal people <laughs> having sex and stuff, and this one stars real people, so um, it's not quite as outre. But uh, Nathan, uh, I mean, it's a think? pretty interesting film. You know, I have not seen all of Fritz the Cat. I saw about twenty or thirty minutes, um, like my freshman year of college. Very into. Early into me discovering the pleasures of marijuana um, and like still getting very like paranoid stoned in those days. And I was at a friend's house and somebody just was like, whoa, what if we watch it for It's the Cat? And they threw it on and it was just a little bit too much for me um, to take in in that state. Um, just pretty overwhelming, a lot going on, a lot of disturbing shit, you know, animal sex, as you mentioned. And I remember some like swastikas and penises and and all those good things um and i you know when i was a lot younger i saw his uh lord of the rings movie 
um, which I always remembered being like pretty creeped out by. Um, it's freaky. It's a yeah. Movie. Yeah. It was, you know, one of those things. I'm, I think this kind of happened probably with a lot of uh, young folks in the early 2000s where you were like, I want to watch uh, The Lord of the Rings. And you like go to the video store and you like rent that on accident. Um, and but I mean, it's it's uh, a pretty uh, I, his animation style is like so distinctive and obviously feels, you know, very indebted to like underground comics of the time. Um, but it's just like really fucking nuts to see that aesthetic uh, on screen because um, I'm actually like a pretty not so actively anymore. But back in the day, I was a pretty huge kind of comics nerd and. Never really got into R. Crumb or, like, the really sort of extreme stuff, but read a lot of, like, Harvey P. Carr and that kind of alternative comics sort of bent of the time. Um, and, you know, those those uh, comics and, and graphic novels, as maybe problematic as they are, are pretty interesting just because... I mean, the interesting thing about like any sort of uh, animated drawn medium is just the sort of limitless potential to li- live out any kind of fantasy. And uh, R. Crumb and Ralph Bakshi and these kinds of artists really take that to its most like extreme depraved lengths of like putting the most uh, absurd, repressed, like Freudian nightmares on screen. Um and I don't know, it's like, it's, it feels pretty distinctive and unlike really a lot of other um, animated movies, at least that I've seen. I mean, it's interesting too, to sort of think about this movie as like an animated um, compatriot, I guess, to the new Hollywood movement. Um, you know, it's distributed by American International Pictures, who, you know, Roger Corman worked for and... They did all sorts of, uh, you know, gritty exploitation, independent films. And this is like very much sort of in the style of like, you know, a, a live action movie of that time. You know, I don't know, something like Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. That's like very violent and sexual, but also sort of visually experimental. This is just like the cartoon version of that. And it was kind of crazy because I didn't know going in that there was going to be this sort of incorporation of, of live action footage and some, you know, I don't know, just like a different animation techniques. You know, there's some really interesting footage in the beginning set in this like pinball alley, you know, looking at these screens and pinball machines, um, which almost have this sort of animated look to them. And then it's just this sort of like weird fucked up romp through like New York City um, and it strangely feels of a piece of movies of that time, like some, something even like News from Home, maybe, or um, a little bit later, this uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat movie, Downtown 81, where it's just like, hey, like, here's sort of the decay and sadness of Manhattan in this time. Like, let's just explore these nooks and crannies and strange occurrences that happen in the city. Um, and it's this is, movie is like also a weird sort of parody of The Godfather, um, because it follows this cartoonist who I assume is kind of maybe based off Bakshi himself, who's named Michael Corleone. And his dad is this like w- washed up, not really a mafioso wannabe mafioso, um, who's just like slovenly 
philandering, abusive, and Michael's mother is Jewish and is just sort of this like stereotype of the the uptight, blue-haired, middle-aged Jewish lady who's just constantly berating everyone in her life. Uh, and they're just always trying to kill each other. And then Michael gets hooked up with this bartender that he's friendly with and she's like it's fired and so he becomes her pimp um and then there's this whole thing with this like trans person uh trying to cruise and and pick up somebody in a bar and then they get beaten almost to death and there are all these just like you know kind of vagrants and homeless people and um a lot of uh, sort of uncomfortable, exaggerated sort of racial stereotypes and parodies, but it also feels very much of that sort of like hippie-ish mentality of the 60s and 70s where it's like, oh, equality is like making fun of everybody, you know? Like everybody in this movie is kind of a horrible, d disgusting, disturbing stereotype and really nobody walks away very kindly. Um but there's just like not really, I don't know. It's just like this sort of ambling plot. And basically the whole frame of the movie is, you know, it opens in this pinball hall and it's just like life in the city is, you know, like a pinball machine. It's just people bumping into each other, crazy shit happening, really unpredictable, um, very just, <laughs> I don't know, disgusting, really just kind of like visceral and horrifying and honestly that's something that i i mean you know i didn't love this movie i'm definitely interested by it and intrigued in going further into bakshi but um i do uh you know you did kind of pick a good one for me michael because i do feel like i appreciate in animated movies when they acknowledge some of the like latent horror of animation as a medium just i don't know it's just kind of disturbing to me sometimes to think about how you can just like draw someone and then like make them do literally anything that you want and you just have this like total control over them and this movie i think really sort of understands that and it's just like here are all of these unrestrained nightmares that i've had um <laughs> And yeah, there's some real, like, body horror in this movie, like... Uh, lots of penises getting snipped off, and... Or, like, am I remembering that there's, like, a guy who, like, pogo sticks on his penis? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's like, there's, like, a legless guy. Yeah, and it's, but it's also weird because it's, like, that also feels, you know, so a piece with just, like, the origins of a lot of American animation, you know, like, you, you know... He hated Mickey Mouse, but you look at something like Steamboat Willie, where you've got, like, Mickey Mouse turning all of these animals into musical instruments, and it's just, like, really disturbing, honestly, uh, just the way that he just, like, reconfigures the body, and I think that's what's always a little unsettling to me about animation is just turning the, like just this total manipulation of the body. But that's also what's fascinating about it. Um, and this movie just like totally runs with that and bodies are just stretched or, or in really obese and grotesque, or they're like a rail thin and oddly proportioned. Um, so it's uh, one time, you know, feels very transgressive and very new and, and of 1973, but it also feels like it has this kind of like undercurrent of maybe earlier, earlier forms of hand-drawn animation. Um, but also I was just generally kind of surprised. I don't know. It's like a pretty experimental movie and it's so strange that this was 
you know, something that was released out into the world fairly widely. Um, and that this guy had a big platform for a time. It's so weird. Uh, so of, of the seventies, I think, I don't think that there's really any other time where like vaguely hardcore porn slash body horror cartoons would really like succeed at the multiplex. You know, this is some like adult would be some adult swim shit now (laughs) for sure. Um, very strange, very strange movie. I think like an important historical factor too is like Disney as like an animation studio was like firmly in decline at this point. And that kind of left like, I think a vacuum, uh, to kind of maybe fill out, um, you know, some of the corners of like the possibilities of the animation medium since like, you know, Walt Disney animation studios, I mean, they were still making movies, but at a much slower pace and no one really liked them as much. Um, as like, you know, I don't know, like the, um, the 101 Dalmatians or something like that a decade earlier. Um, I think, I, one of the things I think is interesting about this movie too is that it uses um, uh, like live, like improvised recordings of the dialogue, and then they animate to that. Like I think um, Bakshi went and like re- like some of the characters that are just kind of incidental characters in the movie that you kind of pass on the street. Um, that was just like recordings on the street that they set to animation. So it's got that kind mm-hmm. of like real live wire oh, wow. uh, thing to it. But I'm kind of with you in that. Like I don't love this movie. I was interested to see what you'd say about it, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting, like you mentioned that sort of live recording. And I mean, that kind of makes it even more fascinating to me because it feels like just another version of, of a lot of what was going on um, in American film at that time with sort of incorporating, you know, documentary and nonfiction techniques. Um, like, I don't know, just the first kind of example of that that comes into my head is something like Medium Cool, which structures this whole frame narrative around real footage of... Uh, protests at the Democratic National Convention, you know, this is just kind of like an, another um, more out there version of, of that. And I think that's also one of the things that's really intriguing to me about Bakshi as a filmmaker is just his like very precise and specific interest in language um, and slang. And like, you know, that's something that has some kind of problematic implications, but I feel like you almost see that play out in the bodies of the characters and how he draws them where like the speech patterns are almost reflected in the sort of strange movements or strange proportions of these characters. Um, like he's, I don't know. He just seems to like draw. I, I don't I guess maybe it's something about the sort of like the logic of the images too, and how things transition sort of according to the stream logic, but it feels almost like he's sort of, draws from sound you know there's like a musical kind of quality to the sort of free-flowing stream of consciousness rhythm to the animation i don't know well on on the music i really like the uh the kind of like a jazz like samba version of the oh yeah rosemary and time uh song i guess it's like scarborough yeah i always thought that was so cool also i'm just real quick before we get off this but i'm looking through some of his other credits um and he did apparently he did paintings for uh vanilla sky um (laughs) and he was also originally attached to blade runner before ridley scott and then passed it off to ridley scott that would have been a much different blade runner (laughs) 
And also Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I can totally yeah, see. Yeah, definitely. Nice. Um, well, Michael. Last one. You got, a, you got our last one. and uh, Yeah. Jessica, do you want to introduce anything about this movie? Because you were the one who picked it for me. Yeah. That's right. Yes, I will introduce Tampopo because Tampopo is one of my favorite movies ever made. <laughs> and it is a 1985 film um, directed by Juzo Atami. And I feel like this is like one of those extremely um, underrated films where I feel like a ton of people haven't seen it. And it's funny because when the Criterion copy came out, it just has ramen. It's like a, a animated like ramen sequence on the front of it. And I had a lot of people tell me, like, you would love this movie. You're a huge foodie and you should watch this. But the people who told me that actually never saw it themselves. <laughs> they were they were just like, this is, a, this is a ramen western, so you would totally love this. But nobody would ever watch the film, which I think is crazy. Because it is um, one of the best movies I've ever seen because of how it kind of threads... Um, food and sensuality <laughs> and how food is this common thread um, between people and it's funny because sometimes I feel like uh, people think that Andrew and Momali have similar tastes. There are lots of things that they enjoy that are the same, but the thing is that... We may or may not be the same person. You may or may not be the same person, but the exception is is that, no offense to Andrew, but I feel like I feel like Momali uh, 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 like, uh. appreciates he appreciates weird and quirky things and there are times... I like this movie, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, you're such a square. It could be in so square. I am very bored. There are times where and I'll Andrew watch doesn't. something silly with Andrew and I'll watch his face and he'll like kind of smile, but not really. And I'm like, well... That didn't that didn't really <laughs> land with him, but I knew that I had faith that it would land with it's him. True. So, it's true. Yeah. Whatever you stonewall. <laughs> this is a betrayal. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it did land with me. I like this movie, although um, that's good because she just said it was like her favorite movie, and that'd been yeah. hilarious if you just decided to <laughs> shit on it. But, but I think that like so, whoever it was that was talking about how you'll love this movie, this is a foodie movie. I had heard that too, not about me specifically, but that this is like a a movie about food and foodie. And what I was thinking is this is gonna be like food porn the whole time, where um, you know you watch you know, uh, people cook delicious food. And I, I was imagining something like, um, uh, what was that John Favreau movie? Where Chef. He that was truck? quick. Yeah. I was imagining something like that where like the entire appeal of the movie is like, you're watching amazing food being prepared. Um, and that's not, not in the movie. Um, there's a lot of very delicious looking ramen in this movie. However, this movie is far, far weirder than I was prepared for. Um, and I really enjoyed that about the movie because I'm not like Andrew Swafford. Um, I enjoy quirk. <laughs> I enjoy the weird. I like this movie. Excuse me. So the, the structure of this movie is that like, so there's like a main plot, which is that there's this woman who owns like a ramen cafe, but she's like not super great at cooking the ramen. 
and like her business is kind of floundering. And so these two uh, truckers like make a pit stop uh, because they're so hungry. They've been, I guess, reading this book about ramen uh, while they're driving on their route. Um, and so they stop um, to have some ramen and they like basically just tell her to her face, like your ramen's no good lady, but we can help you make it better. Right. And so like, um, as Jessica alluded to, this is called a ramen Western, which um, I didn't catch this um, beforehand, but I read on Wikipedia, that's a play on the spaghetti Western, um, which uh, kind of makes sense. Like there's a lot of uh, movie parody in this movie. Um, so like the main plot is kind of like um, a Western because you get, they kind of get this gang together that's going to like train her to be um, uh, a, a world-class ramen chef. Um, and then there's like the um, rival ramen cafe that they're trying to best and steal all their customers from. Um, it's also kind of like a sports movie, like Rocky. Like there's like a, a training montage where she's got to like carry pots of water <laughs> from like one part of her cafe to the other. And it's like playing like kind of like triumphant, you know, training montage music and stuff like that. And so there's like that main plot. Uh, and that's like fun and like basically what I imagined the movie was going to be. But that's only like 60% of the movie probably um, because intercut with uh, this main um, plot are these little vignettes uh, that have like basically nothing to do with the main plot except sometimes they're like people that the main characters have passed like in a scene or something like that. Um, and these these vignettes are just full of the weirdest, most transgressive uses of food I've ever seen in my life. Um, the food sex scene is really out of this world. <laughs> yeah. well, the, there, there's there two. A... There's two food sex scenes. Um, oh, I've combined them in my head. I guess. What, well, what, what are the two? Well, so one, one is like with no context. We're just in a hotel room, and they order room service, and then uh, proceed to have. They don't really eat the food. They proceed to like have sex on the food and with the food, um, like including <laughs> like. There's like a, a really like extreme close up of a nipple that someone like um, puts a, a lemon like squeezes lemon juice onto from a lemon and then salts and then like licks. Um, <laughs> there's like a like a tub of whipped cream or something that like the the lady just like dips her breast into like a like a like a wing. There's a there's a crustacean, a live crustacean that is placed on a woman's belly button and then there's like a glass put on top of it. Like that scene yeah, so from it the like Matrix. Scurries around on her belly robot, and like the shrimp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's one. And I was watching that, I was like, okay, well <laughs> that that happened. And then two, the second one, uh, which there's no is nudity this one with the in this, but this guy, uh, again, they're in a hotel and order room service and there's an egg. Which I guess there's a raw egg that you can order from room service at this hotel. Because he cracks this egg open and like does the little thing where you like kind of spoon the egg yolk between the, the two shells. So it's like isolated, the egg yolk. Um, and uh, then he like puts the egg yolk in his mouth. And like he and the lady start making out, like passing this egg yolk from one to the other until the egg yolk breaks. And like it's very, it's, it's basically sex, but they're a close stay on. Um but so there's like stuff like that and then you get like um like really random stuff um like um there's a guy who goes to the doc or the dentist because he has a toothache um and he's like eating food on the way there um and it's hurting because he has a toothache um and he gets to the dentist and they like take out his tooth which has apparently become gangrenous i didn't know if that's like a thing 
that can happen to a tooth, but it, I guess it has, and it like releases this horrible smell that like vacates the room, and then the guy just leaves and goes and gets some ice cream, um, and shares it with the little boy, um, and it's very very sweet. Okay, um, there, yeah. So there's like all these random vignettes everywhere. Um, Five minutes, and it's it's just such a weird and interesting and strange combination um, where it's like half anthology film that just all are these weird anthology like little stories about food um and then the other half is like this kind of like pretty conventional like you know um uh sports inspirational kind of thing where you know they become their best selves and um i mean i i really liked it um i said this on letterboxd but i think it's really interesting that like you know like eating's pretty gross when you get down to like just the objective facts of it you're just like mashing something in your mouth and then it like slides down your, <laughs> into your belly and... <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, yeah. I, I think about this because the the movie ends well one of the endings of the movie the last vignette we get is this guy gets shot and he's dying and his dying words are this recipe that sounds absolutely disgusting um for yam sausage in which like you go hunt a boar during the winter time, and during the winter time, the boar only can eat yams because nothing else is growing. And so, if you kill a boar during the winter time, you take his intestines out and cook them up, and in the intestines are just um, half-digested yams. So it's like yam poop that you eat. Um, and so, like the movie, like really highlights just like all the gritty, nasty details of eating and fluids, like the. The fluids of like food and the fluids of people are constantly it's just so, like swishing together in this movie. It's so fun to to me to hear Michael just describe, describe this movie compared to how to compared to how Jessica has described this movie, which like Jessica describes it on a cinematary review about like the the joy of food and like how it brings people together and, that's and not, like it's that's not family inaccurate. traditions. And Michael's like, let's talk about Let's talk about fluids. Let's talk about mashing meat with your teeth and sliding down your throat. But that's like the the thing I was going to say, which I said in the letterbox is like. Sounds like basic instinct. Those two things, those two things coexist in this movie and it somehow doesn't feel dissonant. Like it all is like part of the same universe. And like the food still looks really good, even though you've just seen it like, you know, uh, they, even in the, um, in the, you know, inspirational, like, cooking, we're going to make you an awesome chef plot. Um, some of that stuff is kind of gross. Like, they talk about, like, making, um, how they make the broth, and they just show all these, like, animal bits, like, like, pig's feet, and, like, there's this one part where this guy brings in just, like, a whole pig's head, like, a decapitated pig's head, and the woman kind of, like, faints because it's just gross and looking at her with dead eyes. Um, but then, like, it's still super delicious, and, like, the movie somehow, like, puts in all this weird gross stuff um and like intentionally gross stuff like there's no way some of this is cultural like there's a scene um in which like these uh this is one of the vignettes where people are learning there's like this class um where they're learning how to eat like a basically like a westerner like how are you gonna have western table manners and one of the things is like well westerners hate it when you slurp your food and the whole movie people are just like slurping ramen all the time um which is a kind of a little bit of a trigger i made it through but uh <laughs> i'm one of those western people i guess um but anyway in the by the end of the vignette everyone's slurping and just like kind of thumbing their nose at that like you know convention because they realize like this is so much better if i slurp it and you know screw you for your etiquette um and so like uh what was i gonna say yeah i mean some of it's cultural like some of the stuff i found 
grossly. Maybe some of the animal parts are more commonly eaten in other places of the world, and that's fine. But I think some of this is legitimately trying to be like transgressive, and like we're going to use food in ways that food is not conventionally used, and it's going to be a little icky. Um, so it's got that, but then like the f it doesn't ruin your appetite somehow. Um, it still is delightful and nice when the woman's uh, ramen shop is like a gigantic success at the end of the movie. Um, and it's, it's very sweet. Well, at the same time, you know, you just saw a guy, you know, bleeding from his gut talking about <laughs> yam poop sausage. So, like, it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on here. And I, I don't know if it all worked for me. Like, there's so many little bits of this movie. And there are definitely times where I was like, wow, I don't, I really don't know about this. But I would, like, on the whole, like, it, it, it was good. And I really liked it. Thanks for... Thanks for suggesting it, Jessica. It had been on my watch list for a long time, so glad I got to experience it. Yeah, I just want to explain the egg yolk thing a little bit because I feel like okay, I feel please. like people people are like, "This is disgusting," and I hate this scene. But like, Jessica is subtweeting some and friends right like, now. This is disgusting. It made <laughs> it was, me cringe. So, I loved that scene, but it was disgusting. I did too. I but say. I will yeah. say, like, if you've ever cooked before in your entire life, it is messy. It is a messy thing that you do, but at the end, you create something beautiful. But it is not in any way something that is clean cut, and you don't like you don't get stuff everywhere. Like that's what happens when you cook. But as a baker, when you are baking something and you have to separate the egg yolk from the egg white you cannot bust the yolk once you separate it because when you bust the yolk if it gets in the egg white then you can't whip it and make a meringue so these two people are doing what one person's hands would normally do where you have to pass it back and forth without busting the yolk and to me it shows something like a sensual activity where two people have to work together in order to not bust the yolk and I like I know that it I know so there's something that busts in that scene I know that it looks weird <laughs> and that it is gross to a lot of people I in a million years, wouldn't be able to visualize something like that. Like, I would never be able to write I, yeah, something no, I, that does that. It's very cool. It's very cool. And and but and, and I think that that's, like, it's very sweet and beautiful in the scene, while at the same time, like, really just being gross. Like, and I, it's, like, gross on, like, two levels because it's, like, an egg, like, a raw egg, which I think are kind of gross anyway. And, but then also you're doing the thing where you're like swishing it back and forth in your in each other's mouths, which is like another extra component of like, you know, like that sort of factor. But at the same time, it is this really sweet activity. And like, I, that's like, that scene is like the microcosm of like how this movie works for me, where I'm like, half of it, I'm like, wow, that's disgusting. But then the other half is like, wow, that's really sweet and beautiful. Yeah. Every time someone says something about it, I'm like, well, maybe I'm just weird. Because I was, like, wiggling my eyebrows the whole time you were talking about all the sex stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the sex stuff is very cool. Like, I I was... The first the first scene that happened, I wasn't expecting it to happen at all. And I was like, whoa. Um, the second time with the egg, I was ready for more food sex. But that was a food sex I was not ready for. And, again, I was like, whoa. Um, I, th I think more than any, um, you know... 50 episode 
trade-off movie thing before. This has really, uh, really, you know, illuminated a lot of you know listeners and people who have listened to a long time about where we're at mentally. <laughs> this one really, this one really set a bar. You know, they know they know where our heads are at now. <laughs> we are all weird, horny people. <laughs> bunch of bunch of weird horny people. They Except know for Andrew Swafford, he's the most normal square one of all. Yeah. yeah. He's... I only like serious normal things. <laughs> Just talking about pussy juice. Oh gross. All right. Well, I really, I'm just saying, I feel like I learned a lot and, uh, hopefully, and hopefully you did too, you know, along the way. We're all friends. Uh, 300 in, hopefully I never, I don't really want to watch 300 anymore. So, um, glad that's, we have an announcement. We do, but, uh, let's go through the little, the little procedures first. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Facebook, you can find us on social media, baby. We got to pay those bills. Facebook.com slash cinematary, Twitter and Instagram handle at cinematary and on letterbox.com slash cinematary where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode also check us out on patreon patreon.com slash cinematary we'll have a new film theory and chill coming coming up pretty soon um and hopefully we'll have some kind of some nice uh patreon exclusive add-ons to our upcoming series for people who are, are fans of the young critics watch old movie series we have our schedule for that thank you to everybody who you know voted uh, we appreciate it. It's always a fun, fun time of the year. Um, but let's go ahead and go through our lineup. Ooh. So, for 1920s, we picked two 1927 movies, I guess. Um, for English, we have Seventh Heaven. And for Foreign, we have Metropolis. For the 1930s, for English, we have The Black Cat from 1934. And The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum uh, in 1939. <laughs> Chrysanthemum. I have time to learn how to say it. Uh, in 1939 <laughs> <laughs> for the 40s we have for english hell's a poppin I- i'm really excited to talk about that because we're all from the south and so listen to hell's a poppin it's gonna be great <laughs> uh and then for foreign we have 1948 spring in a small town uh for the 50s for english for we have 1959's imitation of life which uh thrilled yeah. to talk about and 1957's the seventh seal uh, for the 60s, we have 1965's Bad Girls Go to Hell and 1966's Tokyo Drifter. For the 70s, we have 1970's Husbands and 1979's Stalker. And for the 1980s, we have 1987's RoboCop and 1988's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. So some first for the uh, for not only the Cinematary Pod, but the Young Critics series with some directors who we, like, you know, big name directors who we have not ever talked about in an episode. Yeah, Verhoeven, uh, um, Almodovar, um, Borzegi, Borzegi, Bergman. Ber- yeah, so well, quite a few. Uh, mm-hmm. Tarkovsky. Some new countries, yeah. you know, Spain. China. Spain, China, we've never, we did a little bit of Sweden, but not really. Yeah, no, I think uh, it'll be, it'll be a nice, interesting series. So, and hopefully uh, we'll have, I mean, we're going to be kicking it off next week with Seventh Heaven, but hopefully we'll have some uh, guest announcements and stuff coming up pretty soon because uh, always a good time to to latch on if you haven't listened to Cinematary before. This is not necessarily the episode because you'll just be like, it's a bunch of horny people talking about movies for two hours. But uh, on a normal episode, it's just Ash who's horny and it's a little bit more tame. <laughs> when the whole group, yeah, when the whole group, you know, gets infected, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> well, 
Cheers to 300 episodes, and thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.